0: Well, if I asked you how you prayed, how you prayed, how would you answer? Or if I asked you how you read the Bible, how's that not only going, but how do you do it? How would you answer? If I asked you how you connected with other Christians, you know, like through fellowship or friendship, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, how would you answer that? And if I were to ask you how you give money to God, awkward now, right? how would you answer that? A person named Josh is a 25-year-old computer coder for a growing tech company in Oklahoma City. His starting salary is $115,000 a year, and he regularly maxes out his 401k contributions. His apartment is in between the city and the suburb. It's about $1,400 of rent a month, and he has a used SUV because he loves mountain bike. He's got friends, so you can regularly see Josh out eating with people and having a fine social life. And even four of them, three other friends, went in together and got season tickets at Oklahoma State. Really good tickets, like $2,000 a year after the contribution and the third-year discount of graduates. I mean, they're young, they're fun, now's the time, right? He's also thinking about grad school, though, so he can advance in the company, maybe even switch to a different one. But most importantly, what Josh is really excited about is About beginning a new life with his girlfriend Amy of 18 months, hopefully his soon to be wife. Now, at a decent restaurant, the second restaurant, or the the restaurant where they had their second date, uh, she saw the small velvet box that Josh pulled out from his pocket and it immediately took her breath away. He was on a knee, everyone was looking. He opened the box and her reaction kind of changed, though she still put on the face. She cried in joy. She said, Yes, but. She was a little disappointed. She still hugged and kissed him, as everyone does in that moment, hopefully. But she still had a thought, a lingering thought. And even a couple days later, she, she just had to ask, what kind of ring is this? And he went on to say that, you know, he wanted to be wise. It cost him $120. You laugh. She was devastated. Amy is far from being a materialistic person. She was she felt kind of insulted right here. He's been walking around with this ring in his pocket as his cheapest asset. "Is this what I am to you?" she said through tears in the cry, crying in his car. Now at this point, Josh was embarrassed. He felt a little bit defensive. Her reaction to his, gut, to his gift really stung him. But Josh said something he would later regret. "Honey, the price doesn't matter. It's the heart that counts. Ooh, now she knows. The ring was cheaper than the football game that he would attend the next day with the guys. That was his heart. Now, our scripture this morning comes from a well-known story about two brothers who brought an offering and a sacrifice as a form of worship. You'll see in your text, it was read to you moments ago, in verse 3, Cain, one of the brothers, that's his name, Cain, in verse 3, brought a gift of fruit of the ground, it says. Abel, the other brother, verse 4, he brought a gift, the firstborn of his flock and the fat parts. Now, contextually, this passage is two men who come to God with their heart's offering, their their heart's desire. One of this and one of that. Two, Two different styled offerings, but still two men who bring their heart's desire. They're two different offerings. Cain brought in some translations, it says some of his crop, whereas Abel brought not only some of his crop, as it says, but the, but the best animal, the, the one with fatty portions, where there's a, there's a quantity and quality that's explained here. Now, for some of you who are students of the Bible or you want to grow in students of the Bible, one of the things that we can learn as we, as we kind of go through texts of Scripture is that there is intentionality of both quality and quantity, I've talked about that before. If you just look generally at the text, there is way more text about Abel and what he did. That seems to be intentional there. Whereas with Cain, there was just a couple of words where there was almost this lavish perspective of whatever Cain was, or whatever Abel was bringing. But, but look at verse 4. It, it says, two offerings to the Lord. Two offerings were given, one from him, one from the other. But it says, and the Lord had regard for Abel, meaning impressed. He was impressed with Abel. And then in verse 5, look down. But for Cain, he had no regard. Now, the sweeping point of this passage is on Cain's sin after God's reaction to his offering. So in a couple of weeks, we'll get back to Genesis chapter 4 in its totality. So if you're new this morning, this is a little bit stylistically, this is a little bit different kind of sermon where we're zooming in just on a couple of uh, verses that unpack for us a, a theology of something, whereas normally we'd go through the, the sweeping of Scripture, what's called expositionally or exegetically, where we, we see the main sweep of things as making the point of the story. But within that, within the main point of a large text, so all of chapter 4 is telling us one thing, the effect of sin and the effect of a sinful heart. We can zoom in on particular parts from here and actually understand a little bit more. For my purpose this morning, I think it's worth our time to consider Cain's heart through his offering. It says there that Cain became very angry with God and then also with his brother to the point, spoiler alert, he's going to kill his brother. And it actually reveals what his offering really was. Cain was bringing something out of duty, not out of devotion. Abel was bringing something out of devotion, not out of duty. John Calvin helps us think through this, where he says, "Cain wished only to appease God with a sacrifice. He were there appease God with his sacrifice. He gave what he wanted. I have this. I want to give you this. But true worship means giving yourself to God, according to God's desires. So giving yourself to God according to God's desires. Now there are wrong portrayals of worship all over the Bible." People are killed for worshiping God wrongly. People are chastised for worshiping God wrongly. Yet in our culture, in our day and age, what do we hear time and time again? It's, it's the heart that counts. That's really what, that's really what you ought to give, And that's true, but that heart actually reveals what counts to you. God has certain demands from his people. God had certain demands for Adam and Eve, and what did they do? They pursued their heart. God had certain demands. We clearly can infer from the text from Cain and Abel. What did they do? Well, one brought the desire from his heart of whatever he wanted, and it wound up getting his brother killed by his own hands. We biblically don't know if there was something wrong about the quality of Cain's gift. You know, in Genesis 4, is, is God a meat-only God? We don't know, you know, so don't read too far into it. Was there something about the vegetables that he offered? We don't know that. Was it, is it just about the best only? Was it supposed to be the best oranges, and he brought, you know, the bottom of the bushel? It's a bushel, right? That's what you collect oranges in. I'm looking at some people. Okay, I'll, I'll just move on. Um, was he anti-veggies? We don't know. God's response to the two, these two brothers was not necessarily, or we can infer, was not due to the, to the nature of their gifts, but of the heart or the integrity that was bringing these gifts forward. Now, both gifts were under scrutiny. Uh, Abel's was scrutinized just as Cain's, yet one the Lord had regard, and the other didn't, but one just didn't seem to measure up. Abel gave his hands best, and Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews will cross-reference this and say that that what he gave, though tangible, was actually a showcase of his faith. There's something about what he gave and how he gave it that he demonstrated that he he had a fuller faith in God compared to anything that Cain brought to the table. Cain's gift showed, according to Hebrews, a lack of faith. So yes, if you are here as a guest this morning, or you finally got your son to come to church or whatever, yes, this is, the, this is the time I'm talking about giving. I'm sorry. This is where we come in the text. This is the beauty of expositional preaching. If we come to these certain hard parts, this is it. Come back next time if you don't want to hear about giving. But while I have your attention, please, please give it to what the text tells us. People have various opinions about giving people have various opinions about offering or even using the word tithing. And even after the story, God would, would actually bring, after God brought his people out of what's called the Exodus, so when they were in bondage and then he removed them from bondage, brought them into freedom, he would then give them what is called the law. Or another way to look at the law, you and I might look at laws as limiting. You know, if the law says, go 65, you go can I go a little bit faster? I know, I know we all do, right? Or if it goes, you know, or we get mad at people if they go 55 into 65, how horrendous would you ever do that? But God gave them a law, and he called it the law. And this law was good for God's people. It was good for them to follow. And when it came to worship, just like other actions that they would live in their lives, when it came to worship, the law would actually tell them how God desires to be worshiped how they can interact with their spouse, that might be one part of the law, but also how they are to interact with him. That's, that's another part of the law. This is exposed to us in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, where, required worshipers, uh, or where worshipers were required to give their best that they had to God, which included, in this case, in the law, the firstborn, the fattest, the healthiest livestock in their flock. And there would be other rules, There'd be other rules that people would be given along the way from God about how they should give. It'll expose not only how they should give, but where they should give, how often they should give, how much they should give, that God gives his people, God gives these people the law. And some people actually live very stringently by this today. You know, you you might have views about what is tithing. And you might have a view on tithing or giving that is pre-tax or post-tax, that maybe it's gross income of the family, maybe it's just. Maybe it's gross income of whatever the husband makes as the head of the household. There are all kinds of views. You can see how this can get into it. Now, theologically, I want to put my cards on the table. I don't think we live in the covenant rule, like in Leviticus or Exodus. I don't think we live in the covenant rule where 10% is the rule. So what's commonly called as tithing. People say tithing is 10%. So if I make $100,000 a year, I would tithe $10,000 a year, pre-tax. I don't think we live under that command. But the virtue I do think we are called to live under is actually more than that. And I think a helpful way to look at this is 10% was a base. It was something that was given because it's something that you you were called to do out of duty, whereas we are called, in the New Testament, we're called to, to live generously. We're called to have generous hearts. Now, God has given us everything in Christ and calls us to be generous. And another word for generous is actually lavish. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't necessarily think about 10% when it comes to lavishness. I don't think about 5% when it comes to la- I think of lavishness, right? If I'm going to make you a lavish meal, it's going to be over the top, hopefully. You should say. Now, some of the ways that I look at this is uh, not only am I going to... Let me, let me just speak to you not about, only about giving, but let me throw in politics too, right? Not only should we never talk about money or politics or religion... We're doing it all today. So let me just bring up politics just for a second. There are political views that you might have when it comes to taxation. Some of you might be prone to believe in a progressive tax where the more money you make, the more amount of taxes you should pay to the government. That's what some people believe. Others believe in a regressive tax. So the more money you make, the less percentage of that money you'll pay. You'll still pay a lot, right? But you just pay a small amount. Now, there are some people who believe in the flat tax, uh, who was that guy that ran for president all about flat tax? Forbes, right? Ironically rich. So there's progressive, there's regressive, to where I, I think this is actually a helpful category where I think 10%, and I'll just take it as a general number, I think it's a good starting question when it comes to giving. Because I know that some of you, you might be a single mom making $25,000 a year. 10% of that is a ton. We're talking about food. We're talking about diapers, Right? It's a ton. So in a Christian way, I think we should be generous actually with you. It's called benevolence, right? It's where the church actually helps out people. Now let's say that you make a million dollars a year. Is 10% really a lot to you? I mean, what are you going to do with 900 Thousand dollars, and I know taxes and blah blah blah. Hire a good accountant; you don't pay taxes. I'm just saying, as a general, you think about this and you go, "Okay, if I, if the Lord has blessed me, can I be more generous than that?" Now, giving biblically is okay. Politics off. Giving biblically is often seen as something that's needed. You know, things need to be get done. That's why we need to give, or as an obligation, we're we're supposed to. Why do you give? Well, I'm supposed to. But the New Testament presents. Different motivations for giving. In fact, the Old Testament does too. There are different motivations for giving. In in 1 Corinthians, the value of a gift comes from whether or not it's given in love. That's really what makes it valuable, right? Or in 2 Corinthians, God is pleased by, uh, is it the response of the duty or the need? No, he loves what is called. God is pleased by a cheerful giver, not of a begrudging giver. It speaks of giving and generosity as an opportunity, as a, as a joyful thing, a, a spreading out of God's glory as far as it can go. So our text, I think, highlights that the heart behind the gift, and that's why I'm trying to really press into this, hopefully not wrongly, but I, I think our text actually highlights the heart behind the gift of what's measured, and it's revealed through often the amount. So today I want to address why. Why? The why of giving, why you should, why I'm saying you should biblically, why you're called to, give. What's God want from you? So I'm not going to address the how or the where or the what, just the why. Why is God calling me to give? I I think the first one here is God calls you to give for your own sake. God calls you to give for your own heart. We often don't think about giving as something that is is helpful for me. (laughs) Let's just think practically. When I give you something, it's leaving me. Yet God says it's actually good for us to be generous. I wonder if you've ever been given a bonus or a gift, uh, maybe an income increase, only to have it immediately spent on something major, right? I have, a, I have a negative example in 2020. One of my friends got a big check from the government during the COVID payouts, only the very next day to have his AC broke or break. He's got to buy a new one. Thanks a lot. There it went. Positively. Uh, Brooke and I were having a major medical expense coming up. We knew about it for about two months. I was dreading it. I was looking at it. I was trying to figure out ways that it would work. We're probably going to have, we're definitely going to do it. We probably have the funds to do it right now, and it'll work itself out. And then I did our taxes in February, and the amount that we got in return matched exactly the medical expense. You know, two, there's a positive, there's a negative, right? Lord just gave you a gift, and then boom, the AC goes out. It's like, why, you know? The Word tells us the truth, that the nature of wealth, in like those ways, is fleeting. The nature of wealth is fleeting. Turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 23. So if you're used to the Bible, turn to the right, or open up the middle of the Bible, and it should be right around there. The book of Proverbs, chapter 23. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5. Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5. It says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. This is where the nature of wealth is fleeting. We learn from the word. So the call is to not have your heart's attention on your own wealth because it'll be like it's called elsewhere, a stranglehold on your soul. Now, a couple questions for you when you think about God calls me to give for the case of my own heart. A couple of questions. What do you daydream about? This isn't a trick thing. I'm not, you know, if you daydream about money, that's fine. What do you daydream about? What fear has come into your mind when you're alone? What kind of goals do you set for yourself? What mistakes do you... Do you most regard that just hang over you commonly? And lastly, what do you most often talk about? What's just on your lips? Now the answer to those may actually describe your heart's treasure. Your treasure chest is however you would fill in those blanks. Whatever you commonly answer to that, that looks like if I were to open up your treasure chest, that's what's in it. Could be your kids, your materials, your aspiration, your something, your mistakes, your fear. But Jesus in Matthew 6 actually gives us what what I'm going to call a thermometer. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. He says, your heart will follow what you treasure. Where where you can actually understand the the temperature of what's going on based on on what your treasure to you looks like. So you should give, the, the word says, for your own heart. Laying up our treasure in heaven was God's ideal, that, that his kingdom, that his glory, as it's, being, or as it's growing and advancing, it actually protects us from becoming attached to things of this world. The, the common teaching of don't, don't hover around that so much because it's going to burn up. right? Or you, no one goes to heaven with a U-Haul, you've heard from other people, where this actually is a thermometer to us. If I have my, if I have my heart on heaven or bestowing heaven with all the treasures of the world that I could think of rather than on earth that actually protects my own heart from what's commonly called as materialism or idolatry or sin. I had a friend named John. Uh, When I lived in Charlottesville from 2010 to 2012, John was awesome. He had six kids. Uh, They're just cool and everyone's fun. And what comes to your mind when you think about having six kids under the age of 14? That's a lot of food, right? You've got to buy a lot of food constantly, and uh, I think four of them, yeah, I know, three of them were boys, and well, three of them are boys, and three of them are girls. Constant eating at this house. Lots of food. But every October, they'd eat off of basically nothing. The discipline of this family is they'd eat off of basically nothing, bare bones. No wine for the, the adults, no dessert for the kids, no fine meats, no cereal. Basically cheap rice and beans, Why? They'd they'd take their average monthly food budget. Let's just say it's $1,000. They'd see what they spent on the rice and beans, and they'd give the rest to an orphanage. The second way of giving for that family was a reminder of God's blessings, teaching their children about spiritual sacrifice, physical sacrifice, and being generous to a group of people who Christians are called to love. And you can imagine how that was just teaching them About their own heart and their own treasure. When they wanted something and they were reminded, okay, what's really going on here? How am I really pursuing the Lord in this? How am I really caring for other people? Your heart will follow your treasure, and also the condition of your heart reveals what your treasure is. Now, friends, if if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I I just want to recognize that the, the hopeful, virtuous Christian life is bizarre to you, and it should be. We look like aliens in a strange land, and that is on purpose, according to God's word. We have, we have all of our, you might think of it spiritually, we have all of our eggs in one basket. You know, a terrible investment plan. Put all of your eggs in one basket. Our eggs in that basket is that God will return and will make everything new. And, and we believe this because God said it would happen. The person of Christ said that he would return in the same way that he could be physically seen and touched. He would return in glory. And so this is why we should hopefully, so non-Christians, this is why hopefully Christians ought to value things that are actually beyond us. Because all of our eggs are in a basket that is beyond us. We value the gospel going out there. Or we value the gospel convicting us and changing us here. We, We just have a different, hopefully, standard of values. Now, Christian, I want to ask you, how much do you long for heaven? I follow this one guy on Twitter. I know that nobody's on Twitter anymore. I follow this one guy on Twitter, and every day he tweets the same thing. He's a a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. Tweets the same thing. He said, Christians, comma, we're one day closer to heaven. And I gotta tell you, 99% of the time, super annoying. I'm like, I know, I get it. But think about that. How long do you long for heaven? Last week, what did we talk about? The misery of life. Boy, does heaven seem sweeter there the love or the preciousness of this life, does that darken your view of heaven? How much do you long for the things of this world? If it's a lot, give those things over to the Lord. <laughs> Start storing up treasure in heaven through your pursuit of Christ in your own soul and sharing of Christ towards others' souls. And there, you know, I don't have any rules for like, you, know, you can't have this or you can't have that or whatever, but, but only you can diagnose your heart. Right, someone might prod it. I had a friend who was uh, one of the other elders at their church. Uh, brought him out to his boat, million-dollar yacht. Love to see it. Right on the boat, and he was showing him around. You know, this is one cabin, this is another cabin. Blah blah blah. And the other elder just commonly said, can, "Can you be a Christian and actually have a boat like this?" And he was just—he was joking. Obviously, he's enjoying the life on the boat. Right? He'd be a hypocrite if he said, "I can't go on that boat now." but that did something to that guy. He wound up selling that boat a month later because he realized, oh man, this is an idol. I've been dreaming about this boat for 20 years and I got it and I got to get rid of it. Christian, how much do you long for heaven? So being generous with what God has entrusted to you, you need to, for the sake of your own heart, become aware of what it means to give. So God calls you to give for your own heart. Secondly, God calls you to give for your own reward. God calls you to give for your own reward, not just for you and your soul, but for your reward. Now, I love the letters of Paul. Paul gets right to the point. He argues like a westerner. He goes right after, I love Romans. I love First Timothy. I love Ephesians. I guess I love all of them. They're awesome. But, but something that's often ignored about these Pauline letters of the New Testament is that they are, they are commonly seen as theological and doctrinal and awesome, but they're also very personal. They're written to particular churches. They're written to particular people. There are names there. There are pastors there. There are deacons there. There are men and women there. And part of what's behind some of these letters in particular, the book of Philippians, I'll use that as an example. The book of Philippians, part part of what's behind, if you can imagine, like a play, there's a giant canvas behind it that that hopes to seek your attention the whole time through a mood. Part of what's behind the book of Philippians is that it's a thank you letter. It's a letter about this and that, but what's really the soul behind it? It's a thank you letter. It's a thank you letter for one church's financial support. Now, cynically, not that I am, cynically, thank you notes for gifts can be subtle nudges to keep on giving, right? It's like, thank you for your gift, also Here's a reminder of what's coming up this summer at whatever ministry or university or whatever. That's not what Paul does. There's nothing wrong with those kind of letters, but that's not what Paul does. Uh, Turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. So go all the way to the New Testament. Book of Philippians chapter 4. Book of Philippians chapter 4. Go to verse 11. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Keep in mind... God calls you to give for your reward. Book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, whether in plenty or hunger, abundance or need, I can do all things. So I'm not writing to you because I'm in need. He basically says that he doesn't, he's not writing this because he has certain needs, but he's still thankful that they had previously given. Now, why is he still thankful that they had previously given? Look at verse 17, scan down a little bit, 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He says, hey, keep giving. I don't need it, but keep giving because you actually get something out of giving. He talks about this heavenly treasure. He's alluding back to what Christ mentioned about storing up your treasure in heaven, that there's this eternal reward that they're storing up through the work of, of this particular preacher and other particular preachers going out, that the gospel is going out. That's, that's the reward that they're getting, even though that it's leaving them. Now, too many of us, are prone to be short-sighted in our lack of giving. We're, we're short-sighted in our biblical giving. We're prone to think that, that reward, when we think of a reward, we think it's, when we think of a reward for giving, it means that we transactionally get something back. You know, we, we might give to someone hoping that they'll be our friend, or we do something for someone so that they will help us down the road, or like some kind of IOU. And this is, in its fullest terms, tyrannical and horrible, when this is even done spiritually. This is done spiritually in a lot of churches, a lot of different places. This this language of planting a seed in order for you to give back something like tenfold in return, that was a super popular thing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, especially in Tulsa, where Oral Roberts himself said, solve your money needs with money seeds. My grandpa, toward the end of his life, was in need. And he didn't want to ask for help, but he was listening to a preacher in Canada who said, if you give him a certain amount, it'll come back to you tenfold. And my grandpa gave away everything, believing because he felt what he needed was money. When we think about our reward, we very often think transactionally, and that is not the fuel for what God has given us. I think I've also always been partial to giving to a local church. I've only been in vocational ministry for 10 years, but I think it's always been partial to it. And there are other good charities and other good Christian work out there. Giving, giving to them is good too. I'm not saying, you know, this is it or whatever, but Brooke and I do that and we love it. There are other things that we love to partner with financially and we give it away. And of course we don't expect anything to return to us. We love that we get to be a part of them. But think of the reward as gifts come to the, to the particular work of the local church. What's unique about the local church? I wonder if you think about um, what kind of opportunity. Imagine yourself sitting in a coffee shop, and 20 years ago, uh, Elon Musk comes up to you and says, hey, I've got an idea, electric cars. And you're like, what are you talking about? And he says, you know, for 1000 bucks, you can have 5% of my company. Now, 20 years later, you would look back at that and say, What an opportunity I just missed out on or that I held on to. There's something there. That would have been incredible. I think looking at giving as an opportunity at the advancement of something is a helpful way to look at Christian giving. what What do you think about when you think about the work of the gospel going out? Well, I hope you think of it's the only thing that is promised to last. The church is the only thing that Christ will come back for and not judge, because he's already judged it on the person of Christ. It's the only thing that, according to 2 Peter, will survive the giant ball of fire that will consume the earth. It's the one thing that actually changes people and and encourages people to worship instead of something else. What's unique about the church is the only thing in the world that when God and Christ returns will survive. It's the only thing that is now promised to prosper, the only thing promised to expand. The mission of God is to glorify himself through The love that is poured out by the salvation achieved by his own son. The Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They'll call on him because they believe. They believe in him because they've they've heard of his truth and of his word. And they, they hear of him because it was a church that actually goes out and proclaims the gospel. Now, the natural disposition that you and I might have when we when we think of a right attitude towards giving, seeing it as a reward properly, the natural disposition that we have typically is, yeah, man, <laughs> rich people ought to give. You're right. Rich people ought to give. Those people ought to give. Well, I'm not rich, so good luck to them. I wonder if you've ever noticed as you've read through the scriptures that there is something particular. Whenever the giving heroes of the Bible, so those who are just commonly used as illustrations of what it means to sacrifice and give themselves to the Lord, I wonder if you've ever noticed in particular something about them. Now, people today who give towards something might get their name on a wall or a building or a football stadium, which is good for them. They should be honored. You know, they, they build a, you know, a cancer research center in Oklahoma City, put their name on it. I don't have $40 million dollars. They should, but the known heroes of giving in the Bible, what's something about them? It's not that they weren't unknown, but it is that they were all poor. And that's interesting, isn't it? That all of the heroes of the faith in their generosity, they were all poor people. Now, let me be honest. Where do you want your name? Exodus chapter 33 talks about a freed Egyptian slave who gave money to the building of a tabernacle. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about the Macedonian Christians who gave even though they were known to be extremely poor. And not just like today poor, but then poor. Mark 12, where the impoverished widow gave all that she had to live on. Giving heroes in the Bible were poor. Now, to be frank, uh, what I experience when I ask people about their generosity, so one of the common questions, if I'm like getting together with someone or a group or whatever, there's several things, you know, like, how's your marriage? how's your pursuit in the word, how's your prayer life, how's your generosity, either one of two things happens. And it's it's not always the case, but a lot of it's the case. They say, you know, money's just not really my thing. I kind of don't know a lot about it, and it's hard for me to think about. Yeah, I don't have that kind of mind. And they're just kind of indecisive or passive about money. Or secondly, what's kind of done is they'll blame it on someone else. They'll say, well, my my spouse kind of does that. You know, we don't really talk about that, so... If that is something, I don't really talk about that. The discipline of giving is placed on them. And, and what this means is that the discipline of giving, it, it is a spiritual discipline, it is sacrificial to give to the Lord of something that you've been given by him. But what it means is that the discipline of giving is left behind out of a lack of discernment or a lack of care or a lack of thoughtfulness. Now, friend, how you view money, and we all have a view of money, how you view money, how you view money Is an indicator of your faith. Now, I'm not saying something there as as well as I am saying something there. How you view money, how your heart views money, is an indicator of your faith. And in Matthew 25, there was a master who was ambivalent or uncertain about how he was going to steward his wealth. Now, part of that's because he just had a lot of wealth, and so he was kind of careless about it or he didn't much care about it. And what did Jesus call him? Wicked. His passiveness was called wicked. He was called slothful. But what does the word call us to do but plan? Steward, pray, pray for stewardship, practice stewardship. And part of this is we do this because it rewards us. Our heart is deepened on the advancement of what God is doing with his money through us, now our money to him. You're called to give because it's good for your heart. You're also called to give because you're laying up for yourself treasure in heaven that can never be destroyed. Your reward is God's glory. So third, finally. Finally, second, you should give because it rewards you. Third, and finally, why should you give? You should give for God's glory. Final thing I'll say about this is that God calls you to give for his glory. I'll use an example from John Piper. He says, why do I give my wife flowers? Not because I have to, though imagine her face, if that's what I told her, but because I want to. I give my wife flowers because I want to, because she's amazing, because she's delightful, because I, because I want, in some small way, to communicate all of my feelings of love for her and delight in her to her, and I use this to do it. Now, what Piper aims to communicate is that our hearts will swell with a desire to give when they swell, with the appreciation for how amazing God is. It is a dangerous thing to start playing the game of how can I be blessed by this, or is it my duty to give this amount, or is it my obligation here, or on and on and on. But if our attention is on the swelling amazingness of God, recognizing that, that He is the one who created all things and holds all things together, then the goodness we enjoy whether it's through the morning air, a sweet friendship, a job well done, a a hymn that captures our emotion, AC in the car. Those things are merely the faintest shadows of how good he really is. I wonder if you ever connect your worship of God to understanding and appreciating his mercy. That, That ought to direct us in some certain way. How much Do you worship God through the understanding and appreciation of his mercy? We try to do that in our liturgy, right? We have a prayer of adoration. We have a prayer of thankfulness. We have songs that do those very things. Songs are beautiful and and lifting our emotions to express something that only our heart can seemingly do. But when you think about God's mercy, that you were dead in your sins, (laughs) dead in your sins, and it says God made you alive together with Christ. That while you were his enemy, God sent his son to die in your place. And having done that, he, he showered blessing upon blessing on you. And, he, and there he adopted you. Not only saved you, but brought you and adopted you to be a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. Where his spirit would then inflame your soul to such a degree that your face, which was once pointed towards hell, is now pointed towards him and all of his glory for eternally for eternity. Now friend, do you consider the blessing that he is turning all things to your good and recognizing that as an outflow of his mercy, that when you pray, he hears it? That when you read his word, that's his very good word coming to you. That when you sing in misery or in hope or in happiness, he is receiving that. On and on I could go. Some of you may have watched the the funeral procession of the queen of england a couple of weeks ago one of the things that i love about what was once the queen and now the king is when they sing the song god save the king there is one man in the world who does not sing that song it's the king just up there receiving the glory that he deserves friends when we sing to him do you do you recognize that he is there receiving it because he deserves it and consider his mercy in this Consider his mercy through your prayer. Consider his mercy through your singing. Consider his mercy through his word. Consider his mercy through your giving. It brings glory to God. You know the old hymn, Take my heart and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, take my hands and let them move. Take my feet and let them be swift. Take my voice and let me sing. Take my lips and let them be filled. Take my silver and my gold. Take my intellect and use every power. Take my will and make it thine. Take my heart as it is your own. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will ever be only all for thee. How do we respond to the incalculable wealth of the goodness of God and Christ pouring out his mercy on us? Hopefully we say, God, I am I am all yours. Take my mind, take my heart, take my hands, take my kids, take our house, take our opportunity, take my job. Use it. Use it for your glory. Look at what he's given us. Let me close with this. We've been in the book of Genesis now for a couple of months, and we've only gotten to chapter four. And what the rest of the Bible will do is it'll, it'll, it aims to grab your attention at the race that is set before the people of God, where God will see them. Think about this. God sees his people in their indescribable sin and will work at bringing all of it to a close. Well, he will present, think about it, he'll see his people, their indescribable sin, and he will work in such a way that he will then present them, his children, his people, his beloved, he'll take his people and present them to a groom. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the end of everything on earth and also the beginning of everything eternal is portrayed figuratively as a wedding and a wedding feast where a bride who's been made bright and pure is given to the groom. Now, weddings are wonderful things. I love, I love going to weddings. A lot of people hate going to weddings and the same thing. over over. and No, man, I, I'm in. I love it. Regardless of the amount, though, think about it. What what do men think about weddings? Costly. What do women think about weddings? Mine, right? But just think about the wedding in general. What do you think about the wedding in general? And regardless of that, there is an intention there of a father throwing a party for the daughter and it's something to behold. It's as if he says to his to his watching family and friends, this is my daughter. Look at her loveliness. In the end, we see the father giving his son a bride. I wonder how beautiful you think it'll be. How generous and lavish it'll be. And may that view of heaven rule your pursuit of God being brought glory through the advancement of his kingdom here on earth. Friends, when you think of heaven, we have something marvelous before us. And may we enjoy it now. May we build it now, may we work for it now, may we proclaim it now, where a holy sacrifice he will most certainly accept. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the the purity of your word as it calls us to worship you in all of your glory. We pray that you would give us holy affection. We ask that you would give us courageous hearts we beg that you would give us minds that are focused solely on your glory, your namesake, your goodness, your kingdom. Lord, we recognize that you have done all for us in the person of Jesus. And so we pray that we would have hearts that have all of our effort for you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.